Thanks for listening to our podcast. The following is a ministry of Orchard Bible Church in Centennial, Colorado. Please join us on Sunday mornings. For more details, visit us online at orchardbible.org. This is the word of God. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Remain standing as I pray. Our Heavenly Father, we want that blessing today. So give us insight into your word, give us insight into ourselves and what keeps us from obeying it fully, as Christ would have us to do. We ask your blessing on our time of studying your word today, in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. It is good to be with you this morning. My name is Bentley Tate, and it's a privilege to be part of the preaching team here, and we're beginning, as of just last week, a series in Psalms for a few weeks, and we get to study Psalm 133 today. Now, I don't know about you, but I've heard a lot of screaming in the last year or two. Now, the good thing is I'm used to it. Now, my wife's here, so I have to quickly say it's not from my home life, but being around emergency rooms the last 30 years and medical training... I'm used to a lot of screaming in room seven when they put in a kidney stone back there. And having delivered about 150 babies during my training and seeing these babies in the nursery, there's a lot of babies screaming. I remember in the delivery room, there was even an occasional woman who was screaming in the delivery room. It was always words of love for her husband. (laughs) Deanne, you're laughing. They're screaming if you were to just drive by on a Saturday and listen in on, on a, a, a soccer game. It doesn't matter the age of the kids because they all have parents and grandparents on the sidelines waiting for a bad call to exercise their lungs. Eh, we're kind of used to that diatribe, I guess, after all. We kind of expect it, but it seems like it has metastasized more recently. And we find the screaming at school board meetings, the aisles of airplanes. We find it in the lobbies of restaurants. We find it at any rally you go to. It doesn't matter the cause. There is going to be some screaming. It just seems like people have raised the decibels wherever we go. I want to ask you a question. Does the Bible ever scream? I'd never asked myself that question in all my years until about two weeks ago when, when uh, I was listening to a Bible program and the person asked this question, uh, offered this challenge, when they said, we shouldn't scream when the Bible whispers and we shouldn't whisper when the Bible screams. It was a real challenge to say, does The decibels in our rhetoric match the decibels on the topic in God's words. And that's what we're about as we look at this Psalm 133. I think it is a real challenge to ask that question of, 
is, is what we are excited and passionate and our words and the volume of our words reflect, does it match what we see in scriptures of what God cares about? So we get into Psalm 133. I know some of you may well have the beginning of this psalm, this, this great psalm that says, uh, Behold how, blessed, how good and pleasant it is when brothers live together in unity. You may well have that in your kitchen. You may well have it hanging somewhere in your home. And I want to make, first of all, just four quick observations as we look at this passage. Not the main points, but I think just enough to set the tone so then we can get to the main ideas of this passage. First of all, I just want to point out, like Scripture is, it is so realistic. I say that because of one simple word in this opening sentence it, when it says that, that uh, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. It is not assumed. Jesus is aware it's not a given. Number two, that, that the focus here is God's people. It refers to brothers and, and, of course, all those in the Old Testament understand this is the wider community, the brothers and sisters of all ages who name themselves as the people of God. And it is focusing on them, not everyone who's alive today. Does, does, are, are we called to have, to have a degree of of good interaction with those that will walk the street past our church today, that you'll see at, at, at school, at work, in your neighborhood, who are outside of the believing community. Paul talks about that in Romans 12. As far as it is, you are able, live peaceably with all. There's instruction to live in peace with all that you encounter. But there is a higher call a more explicit instruction, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, to live in harmony with those who name Jesus as Lord, who look to the same God as your God. In, in the New Testament, really, Jesus' his dying wish was for unity. In John 17, I don't ask only for these, he was referring to his disciples as he prayed, but all those who will believe in me through their word, meaning the gospel they will share. And what is his prayer? Just before he would be led away towards the, the trial and crucifixion, that they may be one. So both in the Old Testament here in Psalm 133 and so explicitly in the New Testament, perhaps the, the pinnacles of this call, this emphasis on God's people, the believing community living in harmony. And it is, in fact, living. It says here, how good and pleasant it is when you get along for an hour at a Christian concert. No. When you tough it out at a meeting of your church in the summertime? No. When you dwell, when you live in an ongoing way with the believers that are around you, when you live with them in unity. And finally, of my brief background points before we get to the key stuff, there's some things that Psalm 133 is, an, is not about. Now, and I, I know it's kind of a poster child for, for getting along in a deep and meaningful way with other believers. 
Psalm 133 is about unity. That's the very, very focus of that first verse. But it is not a how-to list. We can study this all day long, and I'm sure you I'm going to stop at 3 o'clock, whether you're tired or not today. But we can study it all day long and, and not find 10 things to do to get along with the people in the aisle on Sunday mornings. There is no how-to about this. And, and in fact, Psalm 133, as much as it has two very interesting descriptions, two metaphors that we're going to look at in verses 2 and 3, those metaphors are not a, a, a painting, a mural of Christian unity. They really aren't. It's not something that could be on the side of an REI building of just Christians gathered around with s'mores around the campfire singing Kumbaya. It is not a portrait, a painting of Christian unity. You say, what is it then? Psalm 133 is about telling us just how good, just how beautiful, just how precious, just how valuable unity is to our God. Let me say that again. It is about making sure we hear from the Holy Spirit how good and pleasant, how valuable, how precious our unity as believers is to God. The how-to is almost the whole book. <laughs> the, the, the images of Christian unity find themselves in other places. We can paint those portraits in other key places. But this is about an emphasis on just how good and pleasant it is in God's eyes. And so I want to look at those in some more detail. Really the key words that begin are this, these words, good and pleasant. How good and pleasant it is when brothers and sisters live together in unity. And verses 2 and 3 don't look back as much to unity. Don't look back to living, the dwelling. They look back to the two adjectives, to the good and to the pleasant. It's as if the Holy Spirit is saying, I don't want you just to hear, it's good and pleasant. God kind of really, he kind of likes it. The psalm is about driving home these two words. So that you can't help but leave and pull away from that passage without saying, this means a lot to my God. So let's look at the, just the word good. It's right there in the first verse, and then it unfolds in verse 2 as this description that at first seems pretty foreign. Let's admit, it's, it's a foreign concept in the sense of we don't see people anointed. We don't see people in the regalia that is so intricate and prescribed in the way that either other religions or the Jews and the Old Testament saw. But let me, let, in their time, it is like the precious oil on the head, running down on the beard, running down on the collar of his robes. Now, it's a look back at, at how that oil was first described way back in Exodus. Now you say, well, so how is the oil related to the good of the first verse? 
how good and pleasant it is, because that oil, that adjective, if you have the ESV, it is like the precious oil, is the exact same word. So we really might connect it even more clearly if we just use the same English word, just as the same Hebrew word is used. How good it is, in verse 1, when, and then let's paint this image, it is like the good oil that is here described in verse 2. We go back to Exodus 30, verse 23 to 25. You could turn there if you'd, if you'd like. I'm just going to read a description right from the scriptures of this oil in Exodus 30. Because here, I really think the focus is not as much uh, the ceremony... It's, it's not as much the religious service that was going on or the anointing. The, the focus is coned down by David as he describes this oil to how it was made and how God views the goodness of this oil. Because it is good oil. So listen to Exodus 30 verses 23 to 25. Take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels. Of sweet smelling cinnamon, half as much, that is 250 and 250 shekels of aromatic cane, and 500 of acacia, according to the shekel, the weight of the sanctuary, and with that, a hin of olive oil. And you shall make of these a sacred anointing oil blended as by the perfumer. A perfumer was the one that would make this. You heard about these wonderful smelling components. And it shall be a holy anointing oil. I was just downcast when I began to look up how much it would cost to get this concoction. I really thought I would Google this and just see. I just was curious, just how, how rare, how difficult. It would, does anybody even possibly make something like this anymore? I, I, as I looked it up, I was expecting to drawl on my, my seventh grade French. As I looked up a French perfumer hidden up in the hills of the French Alps in southern France, who is the only place on earth that still makes this holy anointing oil according to these specifications. And I couldn't find it because all of the first hits were Amazon. And I kid you not, it's the only time I've seen in the title of an Amazon product and it, a scriptural reference. Holy anointing oil, Exodus 30, Verses 22-25, specifications. That's the title of the oil. One ounce. Five million bucks? $25.99 and free shipping. I confess I was disappointed, hoping that this would be something that, that the rareness of it is what just set it apart, that made it special. Oh, I couldn't possibly ever... Pay for even just a half ounce of this. And then it hit me. It was not the ingredients and their value in and of themselves or their rarity that made this valuable. What made it valuable? That God says, to me, it's valuable. Apart these four ingredients... Doesn't seem like even apart these ingredients had value to God, but when they 
came together, when the perfumer did his work and then placed them together in the proportions that God, not just advised, commanded them to put together, then it says, it then becomes a holy anointing oil. And in our passage here, a good and precious oil. It goes on to say a little bit after that, that in verse 32, it is holy and it shall be holy to you. And just as it is holy to God and holy to you, it is valuable to me, it should be valuable to you. Isn't that similar to really what unity, a driving force of pursuing unity among believers is about? Our motivation should not just be, it kind of feels good and it's nice showing up at church and not really disliking everybody. <laughs> no, we, we crave unity among the Christian community because God loves it. And he places great value on it. Just as he placed value on this oil done to his specifications and used in his way. It was, I want to show you just an image of, of Aaron... I doubt this was uh, the painter was there live when this was done, but at least gives you a, a, perhaps a little setting there of just seeing that this oil, keep in mind, a couple of the ingredients were so clearly aromatic, sweet-smelling things, that when, when it came time to anoint Aaron, this perfumer had put things together, and, and Moses poured, not, not a little dab behind the ears like your grandma did with her white shoulders in the 40s. It, it, was, it was a pouring out of this holy anointing oil onto his head, coming down enough to get into his beard and soak his beard. And if Aaron's beard was any like some of you guys in the middle of winter, that be a fair amount of oil soaking in so that then it releases from that saturated beard and just begins to drench the collars of his robes. Do you imagine how fragrant that would be to those around? You couldn't help. It was one, one commentator said, you couldn't help but smell an anointed man. I wonder if Jesus would say, you can't help if you're in tune with my sense of smell Smell Christian unity. It's that good. It was a fragrant concoction, holy anointing oil. It goes on, and if we go look back to Psalm 133, we, we see that the goodness of this oil made to God's specifications that he says, I value this. I value this highly. If we go on from there, we see verse 3 in this other description, a way of of, of unfolding the pleasantness of what happens when Christians live together with unity. And, and it, it begins to talk about two mountains. Let me read it again. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. I, I got to thinking about mountains. I know the weather's getting a little cooler, and I just thought I'd show you a little picture of ski resort, kind of wintertime in the mountains. But if I wanted to take you to this ski resort, I'm afraid it's a little bit more than a drive you might expect. We have to cross the ocean. We probably have to get our skis and fly into Tel Aviv and drive up to northern Israel because that's Mount Hermon a couple years ago. The only ski resort in Israel. 
In fact, they don't close because the generator goes out or because of uh, you know, just uh, weather conditions. They close periodically when there's too much tension across the borders and you don't really want to ski when stuff across the border, literally a few miles away in Syria or some other place, is making it <laughs> unhealthy for your health to be up there. But that's Mount Hermon. 9,200 feet in northern Israel. And, and if you were to travel from Mount Hermon to Mount Zion, keep in mind that Mount Zion is just the highest part of the hills of Jerusalem. Jerusalem sits at about 2,400 feet, and so the highest part, Mount Zion, is one part. It's not where the Temple Mount is. It's about 100 feet t- higher, and you could go to that part of the old city of Jerusalem and be at Mount Zion at about 2,500 feet. So what's the difference between these two? Northern part of Israel, 9,200 feet, 120 miles to the south, you'd get to the hills of Jerusalem. And the difference in height would be about the difference between us where we're standing here today and about tree line up in the mountains, about 7,000 feet. So a decent difference in elevation. Well, the Jews would be familiar with Not as much Mount Hermon getting there, but they'd certainly be familiar with Mount Zion, with Jerusalem, the hills. And I keep saying hills because in comparison, really the mount is probably much more a a spiritual description because these were just hills in comparison to to some mountains like Mount, Mount Hermon. And so... The pilgrimage that Jews were required, three pilgrimages a year, the Passover in the spring, and then one in June and one in September. We were just were talking about that in our first service, a time of pilgrimage and time that they would gather in Jerusalem. Two out of three, the latter two, June and September, are times there's very little rain in all of Jerusalem and in the region around it. It was dry and dusty times. And so you can imagine that, that this image for them, when, when they're familiar with being in Mount Zion two-thirds of the time, when, when your tongue is just dry, when, when your feet and your skin are just, just, just caked with just the, the, the sand and just the dirt that has, has just adhered to them, only because there's a little bit of sweat, and then as it blows by, it just is there. Can you imagine this image of refreshment, of, of, of pleasantness, when, 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 what if that moisture from way up north, the, the snow has melted, but the moisture is still there as it is year-round, was somehow divinely transported, and not just transported in the morning, that dew, but maybe transported even in the hot part of the afternoon, and just some of it... Just got on your face. Just, just kind of a little bit of it just got on your skin. And you just said, oh, how good that feels. You see, God is painting a picture of, of how, how wonderful unity is by saying, it's not just good. It's not just right. But it feels good. It feels right. He desires that in our presence, to to capture not only what he views, what has his stamp of goodness, of rightness, of preciousness, but he desires the pleasantness that comes along and gives us this image of moisture hitting us on a very hot day. 
it brings up some application. It brings up just some application that I think is really fitting for the, the journey of the Christian life, and certainly one I know I'm in progress on. One of them is just simply this, that this, this, this journey that goes from, from, I don't care what God thinks, and I'm not a believer in the end. Or at least I don't care enough to order my life by that. I come to Christ, and my, my desire is to increasingly have what matters to God matter to me. And just as key sometimes is what doesn't matter to God doesn't matter so much to me. To get that straight, that where he majors, I major. Where he minors on things in his word of emphasis, I minor. What a challenge that can be of just having our concerns, our rhetoric, the decibels with which we get passionate about things match the kinds of things that his word reflects. There's also a journey that I know that I'm certainly on, and I bet you some of you are as well, of, of what really comes out maybe more specifically in this passage. That, that challenge of seeking and achieving unity when there's not agreement with another brother or sister or even perhaps a larger Christian community about some of the lesser negotiable things of either God's word or life. Part of the challenge of this kind of message of, of, of talking about unity is, is to realize well, that's pretty easy when I get totally agree with everything about somebody else, when I totally share in their preferences, when, I so, when our tastes align. I just love being around a Christian like that. But it's more difficult when our convictions aren't shared exactly with another believer. Our convictions about maybe things like end times, maybe things like how old is the earth, how do we read the Old Testament, how do we read the New Testament teachings on the roles of women? There's a number of things when it comes to God's Word where important things, it's not a matter they're not important. They're not the gospel. They're not those things that, that clearly separate us into the camps of believing and not believing. But we don't all agree, sometimes even in our own fellowships. You know, it goes beyond just convictions about things as important as God's Word. It can be about opinions. What if we got to talking about parenting? We got to talking about education. We could find some real passionate uh, statements that might come from a conversation of different ones of us. And they're not necessarily going to all agree. What about preferences? The choice of music on Sunday morning, what the preacher wears. And I could see a distant day in which there is not agreement within the Christian community about something like mask mandates or the CDC or issues in politics or the direction of our country. I hope that never happens. But if it did, we would be called to the same challenges of where does our efforts at unity with God's help, how do they compare with our efforts at defining and speaking out our preferences and our convictions on these other things. Romans 14 reminds us the, 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 the solution is not 
that we, we step away from thinking. The solution is not that we become wishy-washy in any of our tastes or preferences, much less convictions about, about lesser issues in the Bible than the gospel. Paul challenges us when he says in, verse, in chapter 14 of Romans, each one should be convinced in his own mind. And he was talking about some theological issues in the early church. But he adds this, but we should not quarrel about opinions. That's right in the scriptures. We should not quarrel about opinions. Doesn't say don't have opinions, but it's a challenge to lift the, the determination to, to hold unity and harmony in the Christian community high enough. We work very hard at that because God cares about that. A gentleman commentator named William McDonald said it this way, God never intended that everyone should agree in the church on matters of minor importance. It's enough to agree on the basics. On everything else, we may disagree without being disagreeable. The real enemies of unity are not disagreeing, but jealousy and gossip and lack of love. Can I confess something that happened to me about 20-some years ago? I took, after my medical training, was taking some classes at seminary. And I can tell you that, except if I was just unprepared for class, I never dreaded going to class, except for one class I took. I gave a hint about it earlier. It was a class on women's roles in the church. I grew up in a pretty conservative church. And I have to say, I literally had to just get my gumption up to go to this class. I almost wish it was a big lecture hall. You know, like the chemistry classes and pre-med studies I had at University of Maryland. 500 people, you just listen to someone, one person talk. But it was a smaller class, about nine or ten of us. We had to look each other in the eye as we expressed opinions that were pretty varied. And, and, and people who took the class were not ones like, oh, I'm just going to add an elective. Maybe I'll take that. No. People had an opinion. People had studied it. People that came with a few decibels to the discussion. And I struggled, not with the Bible study or even hearing different interpretations of some key passages. I just struggled as, as I wanted to get along and feel greater harmony with my classmates, especially some of those that I knew were just at a different place on, on their convictions. One of the men in the class, one of the guys in the class, was, was married and was older. And I remember that late in the class, he called me one evening. He didn't call to chew me out. <laughs> he didn't call to have a discussion about what we had had in class, the reading that we had a few days before. He called me because he knew I was a physician and his wife's illness that would, in a few years, claim her life was troubling her and hurting her that night. And he was heavy. He didn't want to take her to the emergency room, the field that I'm in, but he just didn't know what to do. And he called me, and we talked. We didn't solve any major problems. But I realized I was not just talking with someone that had opinions about an issue that I wasn't online about with him. I was talking with a brother in Christ. 
And I happen to know from the discussions in class that his wife was more opinionated than him about these issues. And she was the one hurting the most, even though I didn't talk with her. You know, something changed in me. Frankly, not in terms of my convictions, but something changed as I hung up the phone. The next time I went to class, and truthfully, in the 20, 25 years since then, I have been able to interact by God's grace in a different way on some of issues because of that conversation and the reminder that I felt so clearly by the Spirit that night that there was a lack of love. There wasn't a hate, but there was a lack of love to push beyond differences in some convictions, or it could have been preferences, it could have been tastes about how things look on Sunday morning, how we run the small group Bible study, about the school, the Christian school down the street, it could have been any number of things, but I was helped by the Spirit to grow some more in lack of love and get some victory in, in finding more unity with my brother. You know, we could look at this passage and come to some key words or phrases. We've looked at a few. And, and think, well, I thought unity was the, the most emphasized thing here. Now you're saying that the good and pleasant that, that is a descriptor of unity is much of what unfolds to just drive home how valuable unity is. And that's true. But you know what is repeated the most? What what words are driven home, in one sense, the most, because they're repeated three times in this? And I bet you you missed it. It's the words coming down, running down, descending. This passage, as one has put it, could, could be read quite accurately from the Hebrew like this. Unity. It is like precious oil poured on the head that goes down from the head onto the beard. Upon the beard of Aaron that goes down onto the collar of his robes. It is as if the dew of Hermon goes down upon Mount Zion. It's the going down, the descending that that is the repeated emphasis in this Psalm 133. Whether it's Aaron's head to his beard to his collars or a lofty place like Hermon down 7,000 feet and 120 miles down to, to just soothing and the pleasantness when it reaches the skin of the pilgrims in Jerusalem. It is a reminder from the scriptures, what we know already. That what is most pleasant, what is most good, has come down, hasn't it? The good gifts in this life, every good and perfect gift is from above, James says. What does Ezekiel say about some showers? He says, I will send down the showers in season, showers of blessing coming down. And the best coming down of all, insert Sunday school answer number one, Jesus. What did he say in John 6? He said, I have come down. I have come down from heaven. 
in that same John 6. I am the bread of God. I am the one who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. You see, our separation from God brought Jesus down. We can't help when we see faces gathered here to just make sure the most central preaching that's ever done is that gospel message that we are separated from Jesus because of our sins. We are out of relationship with the God who made us because of our sins. And that separation brought Jesus down to do a work on a cross so that in faith we might be reunited with our Creator, with our God. Our separation brought Jesus down, but here this message of unity says, and our unity brings down the blessing. It says it in Psalm 133, the very end. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Have you ever thought about the unity in our body being one of the most explicit things that God says, will? He doesn't just say, and, and uh, you know, it might get some blessing. You know, kind of like when you get that advertisement. Fill out this survey, and you'll be entered into a rally, and you might win 50 bucks. You know, you and 500 other million people. No, no, this, this is a guarantee from the Scripture. Where there is unity, there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life evermore. Christian unity brings down the blessing. You know, I recall seeing it one day a couple of years ago for myself. He asked me, what comes to mind now that you've spent some time thinking about this passage? What comes to mind? What image comes to mind? And for me, it, it, it happened a couple of years ago. Our kids had been scattered as kids are scattered when they're in their teens and into their early 20s. And the girls had both come home, one from the other side of the country, one from the other side of the ocean. It was the first time for some months uh, that, that all four of them they were together. And it was just a good time of us connecting, you know, probably on the main level of our, our house and, and suitcases coming in. It was just a good time. But the better time was about an hour later when I was just getting some things done around the house. Maybe Sandy was getting some dinner together, first dinner together for quite some time, all six of us. And I heard some giggling upstairs. And as I listened in, I heard not just one voice, not just two, but I heard all four voices interacting. And I climbed the stairs, and I looked into Clara's room. I've often told Clara she's, she's kind of the relational glue among the four kids. And I got to the top of the stairs, and I couldn't go any further. I didn't want them to see a bluttering, blubbering dad just enjoying them sitting together on her bed, just enjoying being together. It, it, it's, for me, a glimpse into how God's heart is grabbed when there is unity, when there is harmony among his people. That's what this is about. No how-to list, no portrait of exactly what it looks like, truthfully, we probably know most of those things already. Maybe the best gift of Psalm 133 is just extremely straightforward, is to leave here saying, 
it matters so much to my Lord. Not just in Psalm 133, but it's what he prayed for before he headed to the cross, that they might be one. That I'm going to dig down with the Spirit's help and do some things this week, this month, this season of screaming in our world, and it's not all outside the church, to see if I can contribute to the harmony, the unity among God's people. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for these great images, and I simply pray, Lord, that our heart would be in tune with yours. Lord, help us to crave and and to pursue the unity in your church, your church worldwide, and especially our church here at Orchard. And we pray, Lord, that you would get the glory, that you would smile as you see the relationships by your enablement in harmony with one another because Jesus is present in their midst. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You're dismissed. Thank you.